Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pediatric infectious disease expert talks about a disease that used to be under control but is now back, measles. Measles is one of the viruses that's uh, transmitted through cough, uh, sneezing. It's a virus that stays in the environment for up to two hours. A cardiologist historian examines the 1960 heart attack that killed movie star Clark Gable at the age of 59. He died suddenly, and, and nowadays, one would be able to pick up abnormal cardiac rhythms that might have predicted what was going to happen, and they could have given him medications that might have prevented his sudden death. And the editor of Upstate's literary journal, The Healing Muse, shares details about the new issue. You just go down these paths of meeting people and being inspired or recognizing your own humanity and what they're dealing with. All those stories coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll look back at the 1960 death of movie star Clark Gable with a cardiologist who studies history. Then we'll talk with the editor of Upstate's literary journal, The Healing Muse. But first, we'll learn why measles has returned and how you can protect yourself and your family. A disease that used to be under control is back, and the New York State Department of Health recently issued a health advisory because of measles exposure and some cases in New York City. Here to help us make sense of our risk and how to protect ourselves and our families is Dr. Yana Shaw, a pediatric infectious disease expert at Upstate. Thank you for being here, Dr. Shaw. Great to be here. So with there being cases in New York City, is this something that Central New Yorkers need to be concerned about? Uh... Yes and no. If uh, you are not vaccinated and you travel to New York City, you certainly should be concerned uh, because measles is highly contagious uh, viral illness. Um, it's uh, actually one of those that are the most contagious illnesses um, to, to contract. In general, if you are fully vaccinated, you should be protected against measles and uh, travels should be safe. So what, what's the deal with uh, cases in New York City? Where did, where did this come from? So there was a recent uh, report, as you mentioned, uh, by Department of Health, uh, where they identified an outbreak, actually, of measles um, among um, Jewish community in Rockland County. Um, this particular group uh, contains a number of individuals that are not vaccinated, uh, and um, the outbreak originated by a traveler going to Israel and contracting the infection there and bringing it back to the U.S. So the issues that we're having with measles now are um, international travel related, mm -hmm. sort of? Yes. In the U.S., it's primarily imported um, infection. Um, however, uh, we have had numerous outbreaks um, just this year, and they continue to occur every year, uh, primarily among um, individuals who are either under-vaccinated or intentionally, intentionally not vaccinated. And then uh, there's other outbreaks in other countries, too, not just Israel. Correct, yes. Europe actually had a large um, measles outbreak this year. Israel uh, as well had measles outbreak. So measles continue to circulate worldwide. And given um, uh, the contagiousness of the infection, um, it spreads very, uh, very easily. And we've mentioned there's a vaccine for measles. Aren't children required to be vaccinated in America against measles? Yes, they are. If they want to attend school or their parents want them to attend school, children have to be properly vaccinated, which includes uh, what's called MMR vaccine. It's a vaccine that contains, besides measles, also mumps and rubella components to protect them from those serious infections. So if everyone, uh, if everyone got vaccinated faithfully, we would, measles wouldn't be an issue, right? Correct. So it's an issue because there are some that are not getting vaccinated. Now, are there legitimate 
medical reasons that someone maybe would not be vaccinated? Yes, they are. There are uh, several medical conditions where uh, MMR vaccine should not be used. Um, you know, we have um, people, children, adults uh, who may uh, be undergoing treatment for cancers, um, pregnant women, um, uh, you know, those people should not be vaccinated uh, with MMR vaccine. Um, the rest of the population, unless they uh, don't have what we call medical contraindication, should be fully vaccinated. So um, those people who cannot uh, be are protected through what's called community or herd immunity. Okay. Herd immunity being that um, all of the people around you are protected and, and therefore you are, because everyone around you is. Exactly. So if we could achieve over 95% vaccination coverage for everyone in the community, those vulnerable ones, young children, cancer, you know, patients, pregnant women, all those who are very vulnerable to measles would be protected um, through us. Okay. Now, the vaccine that's available today, is it the same vaccine that's been used since, was it the 1960s? Yes, the vaccine was uh, developed in 1960s and then uh, routine um, immunization was recommended in early 70s, yes. So it's the same that's been used. Mm -hmm. are, there, um, are there risks with having the vaccine? So the vaccine is, is very safe, uh, but as if with any other vaccines, there are side effects that are associated with vaccinations, such as you know, pain at the site of injection, swollen uh, muscles at the site of infection, and in the injection, I'm sorry, fevers. So those are somewhat common and uh, common side effects associated with any vaccination. Okay, but nothing uh, that would give you uh, damage. So serious um, reactions to vaccinations are extremely rare. Um, in uh, many instances, um, the incidence of serious adverse event is one per 100,000 or less. Um, uh, with uh, MMR vaccine, there are some other uh, side effects that have been um, well described and characterized. Again, those the, the frequency of those is far less common compared to the risk of acquiring um, measles and uh, the complications associated with the natural infection. I want to ask you a lot more about measles, but let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Yana Shaw. She's an associate professor of pediatrics specializing in infectious disease at Upstate. So let's talk about measles. Um, how is it contracted? So measles is one of the viruses that's uh, transmitted uh, through um, cough, uh, sneezing, it can be transmitted through your hands. It's a virus that stays in the environment for up to two hours um, and the person left the environment. So it's a virus that's particularly sticky and can infect people even if the infected person is not in, in the surrounding. Um, you know, classically there were outbreaks of measles um, that were initiated by infected person on, on the plane. And uh, anybody who was on the plane for two hours, for example, would be considered at risk. So similarly, if you enter an elevator, uh, you know, it, it where a person who had measles um, took a lift as well, you would be at risk of contracting the infection if you're not vaccinated. So that's why you said it was uh, one of the most contagious diseases. It is. And, you know, it's transmitted through the mist uh, that the infected person just spreads as they cough and sneeze and talk and maybe touch their noses, touch their mouth, and then touch um, the environment. So what are the symptoms? Measles usually starts with um, fever, um, cough, runny nose, sore throat, um, uh, pink eye, and classic uh, measles rash. It's a rash that starts on the head and moves down your body. Um, Children or people who get lucky and just get this mild illness, they will recover and remain uh, protected uh, for the rest of their lives. But 
um, some children will actually develop serious complications such as pneumonia that can kill them, can develop um, um, meningitis, meningencephalitis, inflammation of their brain that can kill them. And actually one in 600 to 1,000 people who have measles will die from this infection. So it can be deadly. It's very serious. And it seems that this this is just a childhood illness that everybody, you know, it's a rite of passage. And uh, what people don't realize is that it, it is serious illness that kills or causes permanent disability. And um, I think we have become sort of less afraid of it because we no longer see it. Does uh, Can a person recover from it um, easily, or how long does it take to recover? So, yeah, so uh, most people will recover from measles. Um, it will take, uh, you know, a week or two, a couple of weeks uh, for children to recover. However, we don't know which children will recover fully and will children will go on, which children will go on developing pneumonia or brain infection or who will die. Um, and is, is it a risk for anyone of any age? If they're under-vaccinated or not vaccinated? Yeah, so if you don't have immunity to measles, you will be at risk for measles. Uh, Typically, um, you know, historically, children were at the highest risk for measles because they they were not immune. Nowadays, because we do have effective and safe vaccine, if you're vaccinated, you're protected. So if you're exposed to someone with measles, um, how long until you would know whether you've been infected? So the incubation period um, is up to 21 days. So it can take up to three weeks for you to know uh, whether you will develop um, um, illness or not. And are we pretty uh, sure that the vaccine that someone had as a baby is still protecting them when they're in their 50s and 60s and mm-hmm. 70s? Does it last that long? So, um, yes, we expect the protection to last uh, lifelong. Um, and the studies that looked into two-dose series have established that the vaccine provides uh, lifelong immunity. However, you know, if, you, let's say, you have received two doses of the vaccine, but subsequently you might have developed, a, developed cancer, and receive treatment that weakens your immune system, um, you should check with your provider whether you're still protected um, and um, or whether you should uh, be vaccinated. So you may need to get the vaccine again if you're immune? You may need to, yes. But okay. everybody should discuss this uh, with their providers because they're the be- best position to determine um, uh, protection. What if someone doesn't know whether they were vaccinated as a baby or they don't, you know, they don't have the records or they, Mm -hmm. you know, parents don't remember? um, Should they be concerned? Is this a vaccine that they need to have again if they're just unsure? So in general, if you were born before 1957, um, you would be considered immune and protected um, because measles virus circulated widely and everybody got infected because it is such a contagious virus. After 1957, if you don't have a record and you want to make sure you are protected, you should talk to your provider. Providers can do titers um, um, to check uh, the level of your protection. Now, what if um, someone has a a planned trip to Europe or or, uh, somewhere else where there's a measles outbreak? Mm -hmm. Um, Should they get a booster before they go just for added protection or would that even add protection? Mm -hmm. So if you travel to internationally, uh, boosters are not recommended if you are fully vaccinated uh, because the vaccine is excellent and its efficacy has been um, excellent. So you don't need additional boosters. However, if you're not certain about the number of doses, you're not sure if you're still uh, immune, check with your provider. They can uh, check titers um, to assure oh, you to that make you, sure mm-hmm, that you are safe to travel. All right. Well, we've been talking about measles. I mean, me- measles is one thing, but are there other diseases for which children are immunized um, that are 
highly the disease is highly contagious or potentially deadly that are making a comeback because of uh, low immunization standards in the community? Uh, yes, yeah, so we have seen outbreaks of other vaccine-preventable uh, infections, such as pertussis, which is whooping cough. Uh, we have had mumps outbreak um, uh, in the past uh, recent years, um, even here in Syracuse. Um, in general, um, those outbreaks are either related to um, uh, children not being intentionally vaccinated or to under-vaccination. Um, so um, it's really important that parents check um, or assure um, themselves that their children are fully vaccinating so they can maximize on their uh, protection against those easily preventable uh, illnesses. Do you have patients where the, the parents are just against vaccines and and what do you say to explain to them the value of the vaccine? Yes, yeah, so I do care for uh, children whose parents um, either have refused or uh, refu continue to refuse vaccines. Um, in general, I, I try to understand uh, the reasons why uh, they refuse vaccines. At times, um, um, their um, um, opinion or beliefs or um, concerns can be addressed uh, through um, additional information that I provide or education. Um, for some parents, not vaccinating is, um, is um, a, their personal belief, but they continue to be convinced that the risk of vaccination outweighs the benefit. Um, unfortunately, uh, we as providers are not always successful in helping parents understand the, tr the, the true risk of not vaccinating, um, and some children do remain uh, not protected. I do try to remind um, those people that um, uh, their children will probably benefit from the community immunity and herd immunity. Um, uh, but um, again, they do need to understand that not vaccinating is a dangerous choice that they make for their child. Um, when they mention like personal beliefs, is it um, is that based? Is it a religious belief, or is it just a I don't want to put strange things in my body belief? What? So it's both. It's um, there are some people who believe that you know, natural infection is better. Uh, they sort of believe everything natural is better. Uh, when in fact, there's nothing far from um, this not being correct belief because we know that measles um, uh, virus is extremely dangerous. And I would never, ever, as a parent of three children, take the risk of having my children naturally infected and taking on risk them dying um, or having pneumonia and being on ventilator or having meningoencephalitis and lasting disability um, because I wanted them to get natural infection. So, Although when you say natural infection, I'm old enough to remember they called it pox parties when, yes. when a child had chicken pox, yeah. the moms wanted you know, wanted their kid to get chicken pox so that they'd be immune to it for the future, which sort of doesn't make... Yeah, that's an ex excellent example because that has been a frequent and not as, you know, even recently people would still do those, um, uh, what I think is really dangerous, uh, Russian roulette type of activity because I care for the children who will end up with complications from vaccine-preventable infections such as chicken pox. Uh, you know, whooping cough, mumps, measles. Um, you know, I understand a parent's rationale behind wanting to be natural. What I don't understand and is that how can they be willing to take on that risk at all when they have a safe alternative? If I knew that my child, my daughter, or my son only developed measles with rash and runny nose and fever and recovered fully, of course I would be okay with them going through the natural wild infection. But because none of us know which children will die and which one will recover fully without disability and death, 
we cannot take on that risk. Good point. Well, this has been very informative. I appreciate you being here. My guest has been pediatric infectious disease expert, Dr. Yana Shaw. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, the heart attack that killed Clark Gable in 1960 on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Clark Gable was known as the King of Hollywood. He was just 59 when he died in 1960 on the cusp of some major changes to the understanding and treatment of coronary heart disease. A professor emeritus from Upstate has written a paper about this, and I'm happy to have Dr. Harold Smolian here in the HealthLink on Air studio with me. Thanks for being here, Dr. Smolian. A pleasure. Thank you. So I'd like to share with our listeners um, the summary, the abstract of the paper that you wrote. Um, I think it does a really nice job of laying out what happened. So let me just share that. Clark Gable was born in a small Ohio mining town and never finished high school. Stage struck as a young man, he did menial jobs while working his way up to a movie stardom. His most famous role was in Gone with the Wind. He married five times. During World War II, he enlisted in the Army Air Corps flew a few combat missions as a gunner, and won the Distinguished Service Cross. Personally, he was intermittently obese, a drinker, smoker, hypertensive, and predictably in 1960, he suffered an an acute myocardial infarction, or heart attack. His clinical course was benign until the 10th hospital day when he suddenly died. No resuscitation was attempted. At the time of his death, preventive cardiology, mouth-to-mouth ventilation, closed chest cardiac massage, defibrillation, and coronary care units were in their infancy. So that's, that's the summary of the paper that you put together. Um, were you a fan of Clark Gable before you began researching this? Not particularly, although we were well familiar with his role in, in Gone with the Wind. Okay. Because back then, he was, he was the star. He was the leading man, right? Indeed he was. He was an icon in, in Hollywood. Well, I read through this. I read the whole paper. And did, did, were you aware that his older wives helped him improve his looks, paying for his dental care? And I knew very little about that, only that he was a star in Hollywood and learned more about it as we went through the history of his illness. Now, how do you go about researching this? Did you get medical records of his or...? His medical records, actual medical records, are not available because it is still privileged information. We tried to get what we could from the Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital where he uh, was hospitalized for his heart attack, uh, but those records were not available. So we have to go only to what was uh, published uh, about his illness in, in the media. In the media, and then biographies. And then you know, you've... biographies and uh, going back through um, what information was available about his long, young life. All right. Well, your paper indicates that he had um, high blood pressure or hypertension a few months earlier um, when he had a physical exam for life insurance policy. Um, High blood pressure is a risk factor for heart disease, right? It is a risk factor, but at the time it was not very clear about risk factors because they weren't um, actually made well known uh, to the public until a few years after his death. And so there weren't, like, blood pressure medicines or anything that he... There were blood pressure medicines, but it wasn't absolutely clear that they were beneficial. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, Well, you also write about his severe periodontal problems. Um, Finally, he had to have all of his teeth removed entirely and replaced with dentures. Is there a connection between dental problems and cardiac problems? There is. Uh, Periodontal disease is sort of a minor risk factor for coronary disease. It's not as if clearer risk factor as some of the others, like a high cholesterol and so on. But it is a problem, and it also gave him bad breath, uh, which made it difficult for him in the kissing scenes <laughs> with his leading ladies. All right. Well, and didn't he have a family history of um, cardiac disease? He did. His father died of a heart attack as well. So in the 50s and 60s, were we aware, was the medical community aware that a family history could 
set you up for sort of the same risk? It wasn't identified as a risk factor, although I think many people were suspicious about it. Okay. Uh, but it wasn't until the Framingham study published these multiple risk factors that, that uh, they all became popular. The difficulty, of course, is you can correct some of the risk factors, but you can't do much about your family history. Right. That's it. Well, your paper talks about um, he had a smoking habit, three packs a day since the age of 16, and he was a heavy drinker, and his diet had a lot of meats and eggs and pasta, and then he had a habit of crash dieting with dexedrine? He did, because he would get obese uh, between movie films, and uh, at the, when time came to, uh, to actually film some of the uh, cinemas that he was in, uh, he had to lose weight to look his best, so he had crashed diets before many of the movies. Wow. So did that uh, contribute to heart disease as well, all of those lifestyle things? Well, obesity certainly does. Um, uh, I don't know that on and off obesity is any more risky than obesity itself, um, okay. but that's what he had. Oh. Well, um, apparently he began having chest pain while he was changing a tire on his Jeep, this um, severe stabbing chest pain, um, breaking out in a cold sweat. Those are classic signs of a heart attack, right? They are indeed. And, and his wife uh, at the time wanted to get him to the hospital, but he refused until the next day uh, when the pain recurred. Okay. And then once he did get to the hospital the next day, they diagnosed coronary thrombosis. What, what is that? That uh, implies that there's a clot in one of the coronary arteries that prevents blood from going through and supplying the blood that the heart needs to beat. Um, that, at the time, was the going theory for, uh, for heart attacks. So um, if something, I mean, someone could be diagnosed with that today, coronary thrombosis, right? Well, we probably would call a coronary occlusion, just occlusion. an obstruction, rather than indicating that it was a clot, although many of them are clots. Uh, you really can't tell until we do coronary angiography, which was, of course, not done at that time. Well, what did they do for him back then? Well, there was very little you could do. Uh, most patients who had heart attacks uh, during that period of time were just put to bed to rest, kept comfortable, sedated mildly, oxygen, and, and some of them, as he was, had an anticoagulant to thin the blood and prevent further clots from forming. So he had that. He did have that. Um, and then what would be done today? You mentioned angiography? Well, today the, the, the uh, care of patients with coronary disease is, is much, much different. There's been a sea change since he died in 1960. Um, if the patient uh, was reached medical care within 90 minutes of the onset of their pain, they would have a, a coronary angiogram to find the obstruction and then open it. Uh, if the patient was in a hospital that didn't have the available facilities to do coronary angiography, they could get a, um, a drug which would dissolve the clot. So there's a lot done now that prevents the complications that were so common then. So if we fast-forwarded and this happened to him in uh, 2018, his outcome may be different. I think it's very likely it would have been different because he died unexpectedly on his 10th hospital day. Uh, which was, uh, as I say, was unexpected because if you live that long after a heart attack, you usually make it. Um, he died suddenly, and, and nowadays uh, one would be able to pick up arrhythmias of the heart, abnormal cardiac rhythms uh, that might have predicted what was going to happen, and they could have given him medications that might have prevented his sudden death. Did, you, um, did they do like an autopsy and come up with... A cause? No, no autopsy was done, and no resuscitation was done because uh, the uh, techniques of cardiac resuscitation were just in their infancy at that time. Wow, so he just died, and we really don't know for certain that it was related to the heart attack. Well, I think the, there was EKG evidence. The electrocardiogram was apparently strongly positive for a heart attack, so it's in all likelihood he did have one. Um, but the details about it were, were never really uncovered because there was no autopsy. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Harold Smolian, a professor emeritus in cardiology, who has authored several papers having to do with the history of medicine, and today we're talking about his most recent paper on Clark Gable. Um, now, you detail his death on the 10th day of hospitalization uh, and that the 
there were no attempts made to revive him using, um, they just used routine measures. So what did they have back then if they didn't have CPR, really? Well, there was very little they could do. Um, open chest resuscitation of the, of the heart had been described earlier, but that was a massive and, and um, very uh, injurious kind of way to open the chest and try and massage the heart uh, at the bedside. And was very little done, although it had been described in the past. So it's not surprising that it wasn't applied in his situation. Wow. Well, if if he were alive today, do you think that Clark Gable would have known ahead of time that he was at risk or high risk for heart attack? It's hard to say, but he did have several episodes of chest pain uh, well in advance of the heart attack, and it might have alerted him uh, that he had an incipient heart disease, and uh, perhaps it could have been looked into it. Uh, before the heart attack actually occurred. Uh, but such things were really not available in 1960 when he died. But these days we have, I mean, that's, some, that's, a, that's a sign that a person might have a higher risk, right? Absolutely. A previous, um, okay. So mouth-to-mouth ventilation, um, closed chest cardiac defibrillation, um, closed chest cardiac massage, these are things that are part of a specialized coronary care unit, right? That's right. Um, that didn't exist back then. That, that's so. correct. Those things uh, developed shortly after his death and, and uh, became very well developed and were the basis for the uh, widespread utilization of specialized units to take care of people with heart disease. So when did CPR start? And that's part of, mouth-to-mouth ventilation is part of that, right? Yeah, mouth-to-mouth so. ventilation uh, was described uh, shortly after his, his death by a couple of anesthesiologists who showed that the, that the air that you breathe out was actually satisfactory for uh, ventilating people who couldn't breathe on their own. And, um, and still in use today. Well, yes, it can be used. Uh, it, it allows ventilation of an unconscious patient without specialized equipment. All you need is, a, is a, a resuscitator by the victim's side. Uh, defibrillation through the intact chest uh, was, uh, was an interesting story because it was instituted by the Edison um, electrical companies because they were having so many electrocutions on their linemen, and they were looking for some way uh, to uh, resuscitate them and prevent their death. And so they... With the, uh, with the help of a group from, of engineers from Johns Hopkins University, uh, developed uh, this device called the defibrillator, which converted the, uh, the abnormal heart rhythm from the electrocution back to normal. I had no idea that's where that, was, that came from. Huh. All right. And that's still in use today. Oh, very much so. Very much so. Yes. All right. And then um, closed chest cardiac massage, what is, what is that? Well, that developed, uh, when it became apparent that you could convert somebody who had an abnormal cardiac rhythm with a, with a defibrillator um, was a major step forward, but the problem was that the defibrillators were large and difficult to move around. Um, and so you, if you didn't convert the, uh, the abnormal rhythm promptly, the patient would die anyway. So you needed to buy time between the onset of the abnormal rhythm and the time of the defibrillation and closed chest massage allowed you to keep the patient alive, provide some circulation until a defibrillator could be brought to the bedside. Is that the other part of CPR where you're pressing on the chest? Well, it is. Uh, Pressing on the chest keeps the circulation going until you can do the defibrillation. All right. And and then I understand the first coronary care unit opened in 1962, just a couple years after his death. Um, Those are in all hospitals now, right? Well, they're not called coronary care units anymore because the care of patients uh, of this kind have changed so much. Uh, Most people call them just cardiac units or cardiac uh, emergency care units or something of that kind because they take care of heart disease of all kinds, not just coronary disease. Well, can you walk me through, if Clark Gable arrived at a modern upstate university hospital um, today, what sorts of things would you expect would be done for him if he comes in, um, you know, complaining of the chest pain and sweaty after he was trying to change a tire on his Jeep? Well, he would have had a, um, an electrocardiogram and probably an echocardiogram uh, to make certain that the diagnosis of a heart attack was correct. 
Um, and if it was done promptly, uh, within 90 minutes, the diagnosis made promptly, uh, then he would have gone to the cardiac catheterization laboratory where they would have uh, demonstrated the occlusion of the coronary artery by injecting contrast material and taking x-ray pictures of the uh, material going through the coronary arteries. Once having demonstrated that one of the coronary arteries was blocked, then that occlusion would have been opened uh, with a balloon uh, attached to the end of a catheter. And uh, by, by doing this uh, and opening the coronary artery before a great deal of damage is done to the heart itself, uh, many of the complications of heart, of heart attacks have been prevented. Wow. And um, how soon does the person recover from, you know, going to the cath lab and having that done? Oh, gee, that's, uh, that's a very short time. If everything is uncomplicated, patients are out of the hospital in a couple of days. As opposed to? Three weeks when I was an intern. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Things have come a long way. Well, this is very interesting. I really enjoy reading these papers when you put them together, and I appreciate you coming in to sharing, sharing them with us. It's fun. My guest has been Upstate Cardiologist and Professor Emeritus, Dr. Harold Smolian. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, what you'll find in the next edition of the Healing Muse Literary Journal. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A new issue of Upstate's annual Journal of Literary and Visual Art is available, and we have in the studio today Dr. Deirdre Nealon. She's the editor of The Healing Muse. Now, regular listeners will recognize that Dr. Nealon shares works from The Healing Muse at the end of HealthLink on Air every week, but today I'm happy to get to talk to her in person. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Amber. I love the show. Well, this is the 18th volume of the journal. Um, it's published by the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at Upstate. Um, what can you tell us about this issue that makes it unique? Well, you know, every issue we publish, I always say I feel like a mother who always says I have no favorites, but you know how we always think the baby is the favorite. <laughs> so here's our latest baby, and she does seem to be to be particularly good. We have, uh, as usual, a robust selection all around the country, all around the world, um, both artists and writers, and all of them talking stories. So I think what I always say to my students and to people who are interested in the muse, you buy a copy, you get this for $10, and you put it by your bedside, and you just read in order, even if you want, one or two selections at a time. It's magnificent. I mean, you just go down these paths of meeting people and being inspired uh, or recognizing your own humanity and what they're what they're dealing with. So uh, $10 for the Literary Journal. Where can people buy this? They can call us at uh, Upstate at the Center for Bioethics and Humanities, 464-8463 or 8464. Um, you can go online to thehealingmuse.org, and you'll get information there for it. And um, this, this year, as a special, which I know you and I are going to talk about, but if you buy one copy of The Muse for $10, you're getting a free copy of a second book that we just published. And it's called Round and Ripe and Wise, and it's poems by a former professor at the Center for Bioethics and Humanities, Bonnie St. Andrews, who passed away in 2003. And Kathy faber Langendoon and I have been working on this for several years. She left a magnificent body of work behind her, and we've selected what we think are the best from there. And so you will get two books for the price of one. And she's, she was the founding editor. Yes, of the yes, Muse. she's okay. the founding editor of our journal. And I think she would be extremely proud uh, at how it's grown. I mean, she, she thought of it as a place in a medical center 
where a dialogue would begin. She found uh, that the nurses she was teaching had so many stories to tell and no place to tell them that she wanted to found a journal that would prominently display nurses' voices. But then, uh, obviously, the physicians were very interested in having their voices heard, too, and she was very welcoming that, yes, you know what, this should be a journal for everyone at Upstate, all four colleges, everybody. And then, uh, thanks to the Internet, we decided to expand. And so I think by issue three, we were receiving, you know, people, inquiries from people in New York State, downstate. Then it kind of went over to Massachusetts and Connecticut. But now we are... All states, um, I think they've all been represented at one point um, by now. Hawaii, Alaska, you know, everybody. It's really, it's very wonderful. How unusual is it for an academic medical center to have a literary journal? I think now it's not that uh, unusual, but I think when we started, it was somewhat unusual. Uh, Academic medical centers pride themselves on students being intensely intensely focused on their academics. If you want to be a physician, if you want to be a nurse practitioner, if you want to be a physical therapist now, you must study, study, study. And the idea that one would take time to read literature and talk about it, you know, many years ago was considered almost heresy. I, I do a writing seminar Uh, during alumni weekend for the medical alumni. And we usually get, you know, seven or eight alumni who come in to talk about it. And it's wonderful for me, the people who are coming for their 50th class reunion, they come in with such, you know, like an air of suspicion, like what's this newfangled doctors writing uh, while they're in medical school? When I was in medical school, we didn't have time. But the younger folks that come, the younger docs that come back for their reunions are also in the room with them. And they say, no, no, this is what we needed. We needed a place to talk about what we're seeing because you're taking people who, you know, usually are in their early 20s and putting them in situations where they are watching someone suffer terribly or watching someone die and then watching their mentors tell the family who's waiting, what has happened, and then you move on to the next bed. You move very quickly because it's an efficient, you know, we, we have to keep going. And so now I think many medical schools are aware of the fact they don't want burnout in their young physicians. They want to be sure that their physicians have a place to talk about what I felt when I made that mistake, what I felt when I saw that person go, what I felt when the baby was born. I mean, there's a lot of very wonderful, exciting things. Miracles do happen all the time, as we say. So um, I think Bonnie would be very happy that this journal has become part of a movement in medicine. It's sometimes called narrative medicine. It's spreading to all of the healthcare professions, I think. But basically, it believes that physicians could learn a great deal by listening to the voices of patients. And patients could learn a great deal by hearing from their physicians. I mean, there have been so many times when uh, people at a reading that we're doing will say, they'll go up to the physician who's just read his work or her work, and they'll say, I never thought you were caring that way. It doesn't seem that way. But the, the physician's reading a poem about what it felt like to make that diagnosis. You know, So I think it's a great place for people to break down the barriers of well, we're taking care of you, and we'll tell you what to do, or you're, you just tell us what you want, and we'll just do it. It isn't like that at all. It's really a dance, a very delicate dance between what you want and what the patient might need. Well, maybe it makes sense to be part of academic um, training yes. as you're shaping what your professionalism is going to be yes, and yes. who you're going to be like as a provider. Exactly. You know, I think I think it would be wonderful to have the young physicians in training and the young nurses in training, you know, recognize that this is something they could do. You jot down notes all day long. I mean, they carry those big pockets and they've got their, they're always, you know, dialing down things and looking up things and stuff. Write down what you just felt because as you've seen with, um, you know, very famous physicians like Sanjay Gupta or uh, Dr. Atul Gawande who have gone on for having two careers, one as a medical person and one as a writer, the world is hungry to hear from you. The world does want to know what you think. 
Well, tell us about this particular issue. Um, the cover photo is... Oh yes. Describe I, for our listeners yeah. what the cover photo is. Well, I would say to our listeners, you really must get a copy of this. But uh, the cover is done. It's a photograph by a local uh, Syracuse photographer that you may well know because his work is in the papers all the time, Michael Greenlar. And he spent many, many years, almost three decades, he said, following a family, an Algonquin family, up near Quebec. And uh, he lived with them and photographed them with their permission. And he has published a book about them. And I happen to be a person who's interested in the Art Rage uh, Gallery. And I uh, support them. And they sent uh, a message out this year, as they always do, about what the upcoming exhibits would be. And there was one picture by Michael Greenlar, who will have his exhibit opening in February there. And I saw a picture of this woman whose name was Lena. She was the grandmother, the matriarch. And it just stopped me cold so that I went to Michael Greenlar's website and I bought the book and I brought it back to my office and I showed it to our staff, Kathy and Jess and Lauren and Nancy. And we all were, oh, do you think he would ever let us put this picture on? And so it is a picture of Lena. Uh, she has a fox pelt uh, covering her for warmth. She also has a pipe, which <laughs> I recognize as a medical center. Perhaps that's not the image we want to do, but nonetheless, uh, Lino did smoke her pipe occasionally, and she just presides. Um, what we always try and do on the Muse cover is to have a cover that inspires. That's what muses do. They inspire us. And when I look at Lena and I look at the two accompanying photos that Michael graciously allowed us to publish inside the journal. Um, I'm looking at a woman who saw a lot, lived a lot, uh, and taught a lot. I think he has, um, in his very short biographical statement there, he says something to the effect of, Lena's last words to her grandson were, don't forget the animals, keep talking to them. If we don't use the land, we will lose the land. So I just thought it was very inspiring, and, uh, you know, it's it kicks off the issue in a really beautiful way. Well, in the images, they, they look like historic images, but these, this is present day. They're, they're beautiful. Yes, so. they are present day, but they are living in a very, um, you know, a different kind of climate. I mean, it's pretty uh, rugged where they are up near Quebec, and they live off the land still. They fish, they hunt. Uh, and it's it's beautiful. Well, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Deirdre Nealon. She's the editor of Upstate's Journal of Literary and Visual Arts, The Healing Muse. What advice would you give to people who feel like they have a story to tell, whether it's as a patient or a provider? Um, how do they go about getting it out of their head and onto paper? Oh, that's, that's such a great question. Um, there are many, many avenues that one could uh, follow. I would say that if you're a student but, you know, at Upstate, uh, there are writing groups that form. Um, there is a writing group that I teach for medical students in their fourth year. So just as they're about to launch, we do a very uh, rigorous writing intensive, and the medical students can come and do that. I would always be willing to talk with other student groups if they were interested in forming that. But let's say that you're a, a physician or a nurse or um, someone who uh, works in the alumni office. I mean, everybody has a story, as you said. Everybody is an interesting person. If there's something that you really are longing to tell, the first, the first thing to do would be to start jotting it down. The second thing to do would be to find somebody who's willing to read it. Now, we are very fortunate in Syracuse. We have a um, group called the Syracuse Downtown Writers Center, which is run out of the Y. And uh, Phil Memmer is a wonderful poet in his own right, and he has uh, formed this beautiful uh, center where people can go and, you know, you can take courses. And they're, you know, I think they run like five weeks. So you make a commitment to go, which is the other part of it, because I, I can't tell you how many people will come up to me and say, I have a great story, you should write it, and you would make a lot of money, <laughs> you know. And it's like, no, if you have a great story... 
you need to sit down and think about how you want to write that. You know, just like if you could make up a musical or something, you have to sit down and have the discipline for it. Well, at the Downtown Writers Center, they will put you in a group that they feel is where your level of writing is. Maybe it's the beginner's level. Maybe it's the intermediate level. And you meet with your group once a week or once every other week, and you workshop, what we call workshopping. And that is a great way for you to find community. Because I think as a writer, it's a very isolating business sometimes. This is also why we wanted the med students to think about creating things, because medical school can be very isolating. You are so focused on trying to do well that sometimes you don't step back and take the time to reflect. And I think if all of us took some time to reflect, we would find we do have stories. So you could just have one good friend and say, let's get together at a coffee shop for a half an hour, and I'll show you something I wrote, you show me something you wrote, and we'll talk about it. And some people may find that they write by hand, and yes. some people maybe yes. write on type. Yes, on a you keyboard, can write right? on type, yes. I remember so. when I started out, I thought, I'll never use the computer. I loved the idea of pens. I used to buy lots of different kinds of pens and hear how it sounds on the paper. It was great. But now, yes, I've gone over to the whatever side, and I use the computer, and it's it's great fun because you can change it over and over again. You can, you know, make your mistakes. Revise and it and revise do different. it, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come and tell us about this new issue. Um, and I'll remind listeners uh, that they can find out more at thehealingmuse.org. Yes. Um, and you have the previous issues on there as well. Yes, we do. You. So uh, my guest has been the Healing Muse editor, Dr. Deirdre Nealon. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, what cancer patients face in radiation oncology. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. <laughs>